I'm also excited about this new series that we are beginning today. It's called Feel the Heat. It's been a weird summer here. Uh, more, we've had more rain than most summers, but honestly, some of the days have felt hotter and more humid. And maybe that's just because by this time of the year, we are tired of the heat and ready for the cooler weather and the colors of fall. And fall has become my favorite season since moving here. But before the warm weather ends, we should talk about feeling the heat There are several places in the Bible where we read about hot times and fiery experiences and just plain heat. And in this series, we're going to explore a few of those. We're going to explore some of the ways that heat is used in the Bible uh, to uh, teach us a lesson or to show the power of God. And I pray Jesus will work during this series to reignite our faith and to draw us closer to him. So let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, in this quiet moment, we just invite you in. We invite you, Father, to come into our lives and speak truth to us. We invite you, Father, to show us your will, your direction, to grab hold of our attention so that we might listen to you and what you're trying to say. Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your patience, for your forgiveness. And Father, right now, we're just waiting to hear from you so that we can follow you more fully, so that we can become like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I heard a pastor recently use an illustration that really resonated with me because a similar thing had happened in my home And you might find as you hear it that the same thing has happened to you. Do you remember learning to ride a bicycle? Do you remember teaching your kids to ride a bike? Now, Nikki was gracious enough to loan me some bikes for today. And I remember teaching my daughters how to ride their bikes. And I remember watching my kids teach some of their kids. And kids seemed to start riding a bike in a very common way. Now, my girls didn't have a frozen bike. Um, I think theirs was strawberry shortcake, but uh, Josie, by the way, is a little worried about me riding her bike. Um, She thinks I might be a a little big for it. I don't know. But uh, here's how kids start riding bikes. Right? They keep their foot down. Now, they might progress to putting one foot on the pedal and using the other like this after a time, making it more of a scooter than a bike. But kids seem to do that quite a bit. And it seems to be uh, something that's common. But one of my daughters did that longer than I thought she should. And I remember one day in particular, she was moving really, really fast using her bike as a scooter. And she was moving faster than I'd seen her move. And she said, as she was going by, look at me, Daddy, I'm riding my bike. And in that moment, I had a decision to make. I had to decide, am I going to tell her the truth? Or am I going to let her believe that she's really riding her bike? See, a part of me 
wanted to let her believe that she was riding the bike because she just seemed so much safer that way. It just seemed safer. I mean, when you start using the pedals, sometimes you fall and you scrape your elbows and your knees and you get hurt. And um, so it just seemed safer to let her believe that she was riding her bike when she wasn't. But I had to tell her the truth. And so I went over to her and I got down uh, close to her and I said, honey, I know that's fun. I know that's fun, but until you use the pedals, you're not really riding the bike. You're not really riding the bike. Let me help you. Let, let's try it. It is so much better when you're riding the bike using the pedals. It's so much better. You see, she was missing out. There was something better than pushing a bike around with her foot. And I couldn't let her believe that that was as good as it would get, that she was really riding. I mean, can you imagine if I just let her live with that belief? I kind of picture her going to college, getting her bike out there in college and doing this around the campus. And if she did that, people, well, they would say, what are you doing? And she would say, I'm riding my bike. And they would laugh. And they would tell her the truth. And she would be embarrassed and humiliated. And then she might really learn how to ride a bike after that. Don't let this escape you. Spiritually, we do that. Spiritually, we do that. We, we like keeping our feet down. We like feeling safe. We like having the faith to take steps that we can see and anticipate and understand. We like to stay safe. The truth is, we like to stay in our comfort zone but God is calling us out of our comfort zone. He wants us to move forward. He wants better for us. God is looking down right now, and he sees that many of us are still pushing the bike around in our lives without pedaling. And God is trying to say, hey, that isn't really riding. That isn't really living out your faith to the fullest. There's a better way. My way is so much better but you're trying to stay safe. You're trying to stay comfortable. You see, I, th I think God's trying to get our attention. I think he's trying to get our attention. And to do that, he might have to help us feel the heat. He might have to help us feel the heat. He might have to get our attention the way he got the attention of a man named Moses in the Old Testament. And you may know the story of Moses, or part of it. If you do, you know that Moses was a hero of faith in God. And God used him to do mighty things. Moses was a hero. What you might not know, or you might not remember, is Moses was a reluctant hero. He was a reluctant 
hero. His story has several parts. He was born to Jewish parents, but through a series of events had grown up in the palace in Egypt after Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. So he was raised in privilege. He was educated at all of the best schools. He had all of the finer things of life. But when he got older, he wanted to connect with his people, the people of Israel who were serving as slaves in Egypt at that time. And one day, he was out amongst his people, and he saw an Egyptian severely beating a slave. And so Moses murdered the Egyptian while trying to protect the Jewish worker. And then Moses runs away. And he spends years, absolutely years, hiding in the desert. And Moses had grown comfortable there. He had grown comfortable hiding. He had married. He had had a family. He feels safe. He's serving as a shepherd. And he has lived there for 40 years, which means that he's about 80 years old. And God had other plans for him. God had other plans for him, and God did something amazing to get his attention and to move him out of his comfort zone, which brings us to the first of several questions I want you to really think about today. Here's the first question. How hard does he have to work to get your attention? How hard does God have to work to get your attention? To see how hard he had to work to get Moses' attention, let's read the first part of Exodus 3. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. I like the name Jethro, don't you? I, I would have liked to name one of our sons Jethro. We don't have any sons, but um, Jill says no. So, um, Most of you think of Beverly Hillbillies or... NCIS, I guess. But anyway, I like the name Jethro. So one day Moses is tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why, is that, why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a look, a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the Lord, your, uh, the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses is out tending sheep. And he wanders for what the passage says is a very long time. He wanders far into the wilderness. He ends up at the mountain of God. Moses had been hiding for years. Maybe even hiding from God. But he wanders so far away, he ends up at Mount Sinai, which is commonly called the mountain of God. I think God does that sometimes. I think he lets us wander. 
I think he lets us wander and we find ourselves at the far edge of the wilderness. But that's where God meets us. That's where God meets us. You might be going through a wilderness time in your life. You might be far uh, from God. You might be far from the life that you had planned, far from promises that you made. You might be hiding from God or hiding from what you know is right. And it really might feel like you're in the wilderness right now. And if it does, start paying attention. Start paying attention because maybe God brought you here today to get your attention. He may have something to say to you today. He may have said it through one of the songs that we already sang or through the quiet moments at the communion time. Or he may say it through this message But I believe that he has something to say to each of us. So let's not make him work hard to get our attention. Let's not make him work hard to get our attention. But while we're talking about God getting our attention in the passage, notice what attracted God's attention. Notice what attracted God's attention. Start with verse 7. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. God says, I see their pain. I hear their cries and I care about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and lead them. In fact, in these few verses, he says twice that he has heard them and he has seen their suffering. Have you realized that yet? God sees you. He sees you. He hears your cries. He cares about you. He's attentive to you. He wants to help you. And he brought some of you here in the midst of your wilderness to say just that to you. I see you. I hear you. I care about you. So God says to Moses, I've noticed the pain of my people. I care about it. I've heard their cries in the night and I want to do something about it. I want to rescue them. Look at verse 9 and then read verse 10 also. Verse 9 we'll look at again. Look, the cries of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Now, don't forget that Moses cares about this problem too. He cares about this problem too. That's why he's hiding in this wilderness right now. He's hiding in this wilderness because he cared enough about this problem to kill that Egyptian. And God is looking for someone to help him to rescue his people, and he chooses Moses. Moses, who had enough of the heart of God to care about the problem and hate the mistreatment, but Moses, who had gone about it the wrong way. 
But that kind of brings me to the next question that we should each answer. Here's the question. When did a tap on your shoulder become a bad thing? When did a tap on your shoulder become a bad thing? Look one more time at those verses. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God. So God has done this amazing miracle. He has used this incredible miracle of a bush that's completely engulfed in flames but not turning to ash to get Moses' attention, to uh, call Moses. He is calling Moses to step further into the calling of God, further into the challenge that God has for him. He wants Moses to accept the challenge, to let God use him to rescue people from oppression. And in Moses' mind, this isn't a good thing. It's not a good thing. He isn't happy about it. He, in fact, is protesting it. God is tapping him on the shoulder, and he thinks it's a bad thing. When did that happen? Exactly when did a tap on your shoulder become a bad thing? It wasn't when we were playing Duck, Duck, Goose. You remember as kids playing Duck, Duck, Goose? We wanted that tap on the shoulder. We wanted to be chosen. It wasn't for me in middle school at that middle school dance when that cute little Barbara Dugart came and tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to dance. And it was a slow dance. It wasn't then. So when did it become a bad thing? To be tapped on the shoulder. I mean, shouldn't it be a privilege? Shouldn't I feel privileged when we're tapped on the shoulder? Shouldn't we feel complimented and honored when God taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, why don't you work with impact kids? Or when he says, why don't you give a little more financially to help me achieve my cause? Or when he taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, why don't you walk across the street and try to influence that person who's far from God? But I know, I know based on the reactions that we get sometimes that when we try to call people to step deeper into the call of God in their lives, I know that for many people, somewhere along the line, a tap on the shoulder has become a bad thing. A tap on the shoulder has become something to pull away from, something to protest. And a few of you are starting to get uncomfortable right this very minute. You're saying, I- I'm really not protesting. It's, that's really not it. I- I'm just busy. Or, I just can't do it while my kids are young. Or, I just can't do it right now. Or, someone hurt my feelings, and so I'm just not going to do it. That might bring us to the next question that you should consider, and that's this. What excuses do you make to avoid God's call? What excuses do you make to avoid God's call? 
God has described how he wanted Moses to go, how he wanted Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, how he wanted to use Moses to solve a problem that Moses has been concerned about for 40 years. He wanted to end the injustice. He wanted to end the oppression of his people. In fact, you know what I wonder? I wonder if God would have used Moses earlier to do this if Moses wouldn't have acted on his own and killed that Egyptian. You see, sometimes we let things hijack the call of God in our life. Some things, sometimes we let other things hijack the call of God in our lives. And sometimes we are most tempted to abort our mission when we're the closest to it. So I'm not sure if Moses' running had delayed the timing, but there's no question. I mean, it's absolutely clear that God wants Moses to lead. He wants Moses to be involved. But just like we do many times, Moses begins to make excuses. And his excuses might sound familiar. The first excuse Moses gave was this, who am I? Who am I? Look at verse 11. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses says, God, I'm not very important. How can I do that? I might mess it up. Do you really want me to go and do that, God? Moses was expressing all sorts of insecurities. He didn't have the confidence in himself to do what God was asking. Moses is making it all about himself. Have you ever felt that way? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to serve Jesus. I'm not as spiritual as some of the people down there at that church. Who am I? Who am I to think that I could ever influence anybody? You just feel so insecure every time you think about stepping into God's calling and serving. Look at the answer God gave Moses to this excuse. Verse 12, God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. I want to be sure that you are seeing God's answer clearly. Here's what the answer wasn't. Moses, you just need to increase your self-confidence. God didn't say, hey, Moses, you're better than you think you are. You just need to have more confidence. That's not at all what God says. God didn't say, Moses, you can be confident in yourself. God said, Moses, you can be confident in me. You can be confident in me. You can go and do this because I'm going to go with you. That's a marvelous promise that we have from God. When we accept his challenge, when we go deeper into his calling, when we use our abilities for him, he goes with us and he gives us success. You know that thing you're scared to do for God? That thing that you've been feeling him call you to do? You know that thing you're scared of because you're, you're worried that you'll mess it up? Give it a try. Give it a try. God will be with you. He will give you success. You might not be confident in yourself, but you can be confident in him. 
But Moses starts to make another excuse. His next excuse is, what will I say? What will I say? Look at verse 13. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Moses says, God, I don't have the answers. God, I don't know what to say. I don't have the answers. And this keeps many people from ever sharing their faith in Jesus with people who are far from God. They think, you know, they may ask me a question and I won't know the answer and I might guess wrong. Or they might say, well, I'd love to work with the pack or I'd love to work with impact kids, but what if I say something wrong to the kids and they all become atheists? That would be bad. And so many people say, I don't know what to say. Now, by the way, if you're ever in that situation where someone asks you a question and you don't know what to say, you can say what I say. You ready? Here it is. It's deep. I don't know. That's the answer. When you don't know the answer to a question, say, I don't know. If you want to be a little better, say, I don't know, but I'll try to find out. But it's okay that you don't know everything. It's really that easy. So how God answers Moses reminds Moses that it isn't about him. God is the eyes. We aren't. Look at what it says in verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now if you reread what God had said earlier in the passage, you will see all of the eyes refer to him. He said, I see the suffering of my people. I have heard their cry. I have decided that I will come down and I will rescue them. I will deliver them. So it wasn't about Moses at all. It was about God being who God is. And that's true for us too. God is going to accomplish his will through us. If God calls us to a task, we should assume that God can fill our hearts and our minds with answers. All of the answers that we need. Because God is who God is. God says, I won't run away. I won't get tired. I will continually prove that this is what you can depend on. Because this is who I was. This is who I am, and this is who I will be. If you read the rest of Exodus chapter 3, you will see not only did God give Moses the specific answer to the question Moses was worried that the people would ask, but he gave him all of the details of what he should say as God's spokesperson. And I'm amazed how often that happens. I'm amazed how often God provides the answers for me at just the right time. I may read something in my personal Bible study on Tuesday and then on Friday, somebody will ask me a question, and that verse that I read on Tuesday is exactly the right answer for their question. Now, occasionally, I have to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. But many times, God provides the answers we need in our Bible reading, or in a message, or uh, in the discussion at our growth group. So in the rest of the chapter... Chapter 3, God reassures Moses, he expresses his heart to the people again, and he promises 
them help. He promises miracles. But Moses is still not convinced. He has another excuse. The next excuse is what if? What if? Look at chapter 4 verse 1. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Moses was saying, I'm not qualified to speak for you, and everyone will know it. Why should they listen to me? Why should they believe me? Why should they follow me? I am not ready for this job. I don't know how to do this. They won't listen to me. They won't believe me. And again, today this is common. Many people are sitting back and they're not serving because they don't think they're qualified to serve. They don't think that they have the skills or that anyone would be influenced by them. Look at how God answered Moses. Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? God always uses what's in our hand, by the way. But if you read on, you will see kind of a funny scene. I I think it's funny anyway. Moses has a shepherd's staff in his hand, a, a stick And God says, Moses, throw that down on the ground. And when Moses throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. Okay? Now, you know what the Bible says happened then? The Bible says Moses jumped back from the snake. You know what that means? He was not a good shepherd. Shepherding probably wasn't his thing because shepherds have to deal with snakes. And so when he jumps back from the snake, Snake, he's just proving, uh, I'm probably not doing what God really wants me to do because I'm jumping back from this snake. Anyway, um, but then God goes on. God shows him a few more miracles that he will be able to do to prove to people that they should believe him, that they should listen to him, that they should follow him. And that should have been a wow thing for Moses. It should have been a wow thing. God is letting him participate in miracles, actually do miracles. He's showing Moses some really cool things, but Moses is missing the wow. He's missing the wow because Moses has this weird skill that some of us have. Some of us can how a wow to death. Some of us can how a wow to death. And um, have you noticed that there's how people and there's wow people? And have you noticed they usually marry each other? That in most marriages, there's a wow person who always runs in going, hey, this is what we should do. It'll be cool. Let's do this. And then the other person starts howling the wow to death. Stupid little insignificant things like, how would we pay for that? How could we afford that, you know? And so we have this tendency to how the wows to death. Here's the thing. God is the wow, and we're almost always the how. And that's often what keeps us from hearing God's call. It's often what keeps us from following it. We're so focused on the how, the what if. You know, how would we ever be able to do that? What if I said yes to God and he sidelines my dreams and my purpose? Or what if I said yes and he changes 
who I am. And we can be so focused on the how that we totally miss the wow. Apparently Moses did. Look at what he says next in verse 10. He says, I'm not your person, God. I'm not your person. Here's what verse 10 says. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh Lord, I am not very good with words. I never have been. I am not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Moses is basically saying to God, God, someone else can do this better. I'm not your person, God. And I can't tell you how many times in 40 years of ministry I've heard that. We will ask someone to serve Jesus in some way and they will say, there must be someone who can do it better. There's got to be someone who can do it better than I can. And many of you assume that we don't want you to serve because we have all of these people uh, who can do it better than you can do it. And I have news for you. Either they aren't volunteering or they're not here or they're too busy doing something else. We need you. And sometimes this reason takes another form. I mean, you have some things you do want to do for God, some things that you do feel God is nudging you to do, but every time you come to church, you see somebody else already doing that. And you just think that that position's already full. Would you volunteer anyway? Every week, you see people in our AV booth, people running those cameras, but we need other people to do that. We need you. Every week you see guest services people and people working in the cafe, but we don't have enough. We need you to do that. And just because everything looks covered doesn't mean we don't need you. And you may do it differently, but we still need you. Who knows? You may do it better. You may do it better. Look at the answer that God gave Moses. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you what to say. God says, I made you, Moses. I made your mouth. I made you. I gave you the gifts you have. How dare you decide someone else can do what I created you to do better than you can. You see, God doesn't want you to measure up to someone else or compare yourself with someone else. He wants you to measure up to what he created you to be and to live out his plan and his purpose for your life. Now, you might think after this whole conversation with God, this miraculous conversation with God, that Moses would get it, that he would say, okay, God, I'll do that. But look at verse 13. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Send anyone else. Moses is saying something to God that I've said to him, and I think probably you have too. He was saying, you know what, I want to keep things the same. I want to keep everything like it is. I want to stay here. I want to stay who I am right now. Now, God, it's true. I, I really don't like who I am right now. But somehow it feels safer 
to stay here, to be here, to not change. It feels safer to stay here than to follow you into unknown territory, doing things that I've never done before. So please, please send someone else, anyone else, anyone else. Here's the truth. We always have an excuse. We always have an excuse. Please hear the message that God is trying to send to us today. There is no one who can live out God's purpose for your life better than you can live out his purpose for you. There is nobody who can do it better. Whatever it is that God wants you to do, there is no one who can live out that purpose better than you can live out that purpose. God wants you to be you. He wants to use, you to use what he's put in your hands. He wants you to use your skills, your abilities, all of the things that he has given to you. He wants you to use your personality. He wants you to follow him deeper into his calling for your life. So what is it that God's nudging you to do? What talents have you been sitting on and withholding for years? And if you don't know, you can sign up for our Get in the Game class. You can stop by our Action Steps booth and they will help you to understand yourself better and to find your place. And you could also just start asking spiritual people in your life. Just ask them, what do you see in me? How would you see God using me? As a leader and as your pastor, I want to call your gifts out of you. What I see inside of you needs to come out. And you know, for some of you, it might be a really big dream. A scary dream, a life-altering dream. But for most of us, it's probably not. It's probably something small, something simple. As a matter of fact, the enemy wants to make you think that your path and your purpose is so small, so insignificant that it wouldn't matter if you lived it out or just ignored it. It might be causing you to skip what God is saying to you. But he's trying to get your attention. He wants to use you to rescue people who are hurting. He wants to love people through you. And he's asking you, to leave your comfort zone, to let him take you on the most awesome, fulfilling adventure of your life. So let me end with two questions. Does God have your attention yet? And will you leave the house for the wow of his plan for your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even in this moment, there are people here who are negotiating, who are making excuses, who are seeing all of the reasons why they should stay where they're at rather than moving forward into your plan. And Father, I pray right now that you would just nudge them again. Let them feel your love. Father, thank you so much that you promise to go with us. Thank you, Father, that it's not about us. It's about you. That you see. That you hear. That you care. 
that you act. And now, Father, would you help us just to simply say yes as you call us forth, as you nudge us forward into your calling. And Father, thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you that even when we have fallen, even when we have failed, you want to use us. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you right now in this quiet moment, asking that you help us to take that next step, whatever it may be. In Jesus' name, amen.